Well, good morning, ladies, and welcome to our last chapter of 1 Peter. For those of you who are here present, um, or those who are at home listening on the podcast, you could be encouraged that you are still here and you have sat under an entire book of the Bible. For anybody who, like me, might feel discouraged, not being able to keep up with your Bible reading plans, um, that's an awesome thing. And I hope that it will propel you onward into the good discipline of Bible intake on your own. Um, the word is living and active and it is rich with all that we need and I'm so thankful to have had the opportunity to be asked to do this last uh, chapter because it has equipped me and encouraged me in ways that I didn't think um, possible in the closing remarks (sighs) anyway um, as we'll be reminded today one last time 1 Peter has been a book that has taught us how we can stand firm in our faith, and particularly how we can stand firm in a hostile world. And ladies, it has been a hostile couple of years. And so I've been thankful for just this chapter, this book, that has been able to remind us to keep our eyes fixed on the prize, and our prize is our inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. Uh, I have broken our chapter today into three parts. They're up there in case you wanted to write them down. But verses 6 and 7 are standing firm in humility. Verses 8 and 9, standing firm, persevering through suffering or trials. And then verses 10 through the end, uh, stand firm in the true grace of God. And so before I do a bit of a recap, uh, let's dive right in and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for your word and for your grace that is over our lives. God, I praise you um, just for the time that we have now to join together as, as women, both here and for those at home. God, those who are just faithfully seeking your face um, and just wanting to know more and more of who you are. And we praise you, Father, that you have given us all that we need through your word for life and for godliness, God. And so I just ask right now that you, Lord, would speak through me, that it would not be my words or my thoughts that I'm teaching to these women, Father, but it would be under your authority, and so that you would just give me the voice, that you would calm my nerves, um, and just help me to speak with clarity and great joy, because, Father, it is with great joy that we can look forward to the future grace that you have promised us. And so uh, as we dig in now, I just pray that you would open our hearts and open our eyes and just speak boldly, Father, in Jesus' name. Okay, so chapter 5, 6 through 12. I'm going to start just reading 6 through 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, 
strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. <sighs> okay, so our passage opens again with a familiar topic that we've already gone over today. I kind of just want to take this off. That's going to be so much easier. Okay. Uh, the idea of humility. We're called to humble yourselves, therefore, indicating that it is in response to something that we have, um, led by Chantel last week, covered. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is so much more than just a characteristic or trait that we wish to obtain, but it is actually the very essence or core of our faith and our walk. As Christ did not count himself equal with God, but humbled himself to the cross, and humbled himself by becoming flesh, that in every way he can and does relate to us, he had humbled himself in the truest sense, being made so low that he had given his own life, that we would be exalted at the proper time, and so that we would be brought to God. In the same way, we are called to humility, to humble ourselves, we have looked at that through chapters one through four, humbling ourselves, uh, remember, remembering that which we can rejoice in, the hope that we have, the fact that we've been born again to a living hope. We can rejoice and humble ourselves knowing that we have been called and given this great identity in Christ Jesus. We've been named a chosen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. We went through humility in different aspects of life, whether it be through employment, um, uh, submitting through authority within our marriages and our home. And then just humility continued on as we looked to the cross and to the good works that we've been called to. Humility, as Chantel brought forth last week, we were reminded is a self-forgetfulness a matter of living out the Philippians 2, 2 to 3 mantra, if you would, and continuing um, and counting all others above ourselves, loving them earnestly and seeking to make much of God. This is the good work of humility. But Peter isn't just reiterating our need to be humble amongst ourselves or to be humble and loving to others, but specifically he's calling us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The phrase mighty hand of God is calling to mind in particular when God led and delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. In Deuteronomy 4.34, it says, has, God, has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh, your God, did for you in Egypt before your eyes? In the same way that God faithfully delivered them out of Egypt then, Peter was assuring his readers that he will also deliver them from their present suffering in Asia. His mighty hand is a depiction of his power, and Peter knew that his audience would be aware of the incredibly powerful ways that God delivered them. Uh, just thinking the many plagues that were brought before Pharaoh and ended in the death of the firstborn sons, and the Passover where the blood went over the doorposts. And this was a stamp for God to pass over those homes, to spare their lives. 
as if this was not in itself enough to remind them of the power and grace of God. Their deliverance continued with his power in the crossing of the Red Sea and the complete obliteration of Pharaoh's army under the water. And what is it then that Moses says to his people on God's behalf? Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh. Exodus 14.13 The idea of standing firm in our faith and standing firm by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, exalting and looking to his power is not a new concept. And it's one that Peter knew firsthand, having lived alongside Jesus uh, and denying him those three times, but then being able to, to continue on to share his message. So we stand firm and we humble ourselves so that at the proper time, he will exalt us. We humble ourselves, um, sorry, so that basically we could view here the so that as an equal sign. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and then that equals our exaltation at a proper time. Peter is alluding here to our future exaltation. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, ensure that the time that God has in mind for us to be glorified as Christ was, will happen. We will be raised to live in his eternal glory and in his very presence. Remember that in chapter one, this is the very inheritance to which we can rejoice. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who according to his great mercy has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. That inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us by God's power, guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed. This is the exaltation and, and the power of God that we can entrust ourselves to, knowing that he is and has always been faithful and that his power is guarding us now and that his power will exalt us and raise us together then. Sorry, hold on. I can hear my son. <laughs> okay. All that he has spoken, he has fulfilled. Our God is mighty and faithful. Do we trust him at his word? Do we trust that he cares for you, for us? If you look to verse 7, the second part, it says, we cast on all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. We move from humility to anxiety, which is a product of pride. In order for us to humble ourselves, we must be ridding ourselves of the things that keep us looking at us over God the things that make us self-reliant instead of God-reliant, and God-forgetful instead of self-forgetful. The casting here is like the casting they did when they threw their robes upon the donkey that would bring King Jesus into Jerusalem as he came to bring salvation. It's a reminder that we are not to be living passively, but actively in our faith. As Sinclair Ferguson put it, by faith, we have to say to our anxiety, I will place you on the shoulders of Christ Jesus and he will carry all of them and bring us safely home to glory. It is in fact an act, throwing our burdens upon the Lord and then resting, trusting that he will sustain and keep us because he cares for us, 
is hard. It's hard for us to do even now. It would have been hard for them then. And it's hard because we, I think, so often can forget that God does care. But if ever it's hard for us to remember that he cares for us, we only need to look at the cross. God so loved that he sent his son. If he can do that, he can carry us through whatever sufferings, whatever trials it is that we are going through. Remember in the Gospel of Matthew, we were reminded to seek first the kingdom of God and not to be anxious. Anxiety weighs down the heart, and it does so by filling our thoughts with fears, doubts, worry. We begin to obsess over the small things, and they become the big things. We begin to desire the approval uh, and praise of men more than we desire to please God and to love him and to worship him. Anxiety can, can weigh us down. And this is why, if left unchecked, they become the only things that we see. And Peter is reminding us to look past that. He's reminding us to cast those upon the Lord. Be actively preaching the word to yourselves and reminding ourselves of who God is, all that he has done for us, and the promises. And then when you're done, you repeat. Like the psalmist in Psalm 42 who starts full of despair. He reminds himself at the end to hope in God. Isaiah 26 tells us that we are kept in perfect peace as our minds are fixed upon the word. If ever your heart is not at peace, if ever you are feeling anxious and prone to just look at the circumstances you're in, consider where you are looking and set your sights then to look long at the grace of God. Our hope in God involves having a certainty in all that he is, in all that he has done, all that he has promised and commanded. Peter knew this, and he wrote about it as someone who had lived not a perfect Christian life, but someone who himself, in pride, had denied Christ and had then been restored. And why is it important for us to remember First, on the outset, to be humble and to cast our anxieties upon the Lord or that he cares for us. Because as we'll see in our next section, chapters 8 and 9, the devil is standing there and he is hunting. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. We've kind of already alluded to this a bit. And we've seen it a couple times throughout the book. But sober-minded is to be thinking clearly. When we're not sober, we are drunk, stumbling around incapable of seeing clearly. We leave a wake of destruction in our path. Peter is calling again, us, calling us again to sobriety and to a clarity of thought. This would be the third time that he has done so, indicating its importance. It is important that we be thinking clearly, and not just clearly about our circumstances, but that we be thinking rightly and rightly about God. As God's people living for his glory, we ought to be thinking about the things that are good, honorable, pure, true, worthy of praise and excellent, the things that are of the spirit and that which is from above, and not have our minds intoxicated with the things of the here and now. It is so easy for us to fix our eyes 
on the circumstances that we live in, whether it be COVID, death, disease, suffering, persecution at the hands of men or our friends or family because of our faith. Whatever it is, we need to remember that we are a chosen race and a holy priesthood, and we have been called by God to be his own treasured possession. I don't know if any of you have just like lingered on that for a moment, but to be a treasured possession isn't just to be belonging to somebody, but to be somebody that he's looking on, he thinks of and cares of and is actively remembering you now and every day. As a holy priesthood, it made me think of the Levites who were called to guard the tabernacle in the Old Testament. In the same way, we are responsible to be guarding this temple. And for those who are not here, this is the body that I'm pointing to. Um, our body is the temple for the Holy Spirit. And we need to be guarding what it is that we see, what it is that we hear, as much as it is that we guard how we act, what we say. And we do this because if we're not thinking clearly, then we're vulnerable to the attacks of the devil. Be watchful is the next imperative. The opposite of watchful is to be sleeping. We need to be awake and alert, and in particularly against the attacks of the devil, because they're not attacks that are just obvious. He's not just going to pounce on you when you're walking down the street but rather like a lion stalks his prey and finds out where the vulnerability is, there is where he attacks. In this case, the best attack is usually to place doubts and lies into our minds about who God is, much like the serpent did to Eve in the garden. When, she bent ever so, when he bent ever so slightly the words that God had spoken in order to convince her that he would keep something from her, she left believing that God would prevent her from becoming like him, when in actuality, she had been handcrafted to be his exact imprint in ways that we can't even fathom. Imagine waking up, never worrying about what you have to wear or to be able to stand naked and unashamed. I, that would just, and that right there would be great for me, but. And, before that, like, then sin enters, right? And she, she's led to believe that God is trying to keep her from being like him. I think when we think of the devil, um, the best example or words that I could find for it were in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. I haven't actually read all of it, but Charles is like, knows that book, back to cover. And uh, so he'd be a great resource. But in what I had read, I think it articulates it well. At one point he says, it is funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. If this fails, you must fall back on a subtler misdirection of his intention. Whenever they are attending to the enemy himself, he's referencing the enemy as God, we are defeated, but there are ways of preventing them from doing so. The simplest is to turn their gaze away from him, God, towards themselves. Keep them watching their own minds and trying to produce feelings thereby through the action of their own wills. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven instead of actually seeking to be truly repentant. 
there are so many other examples in that book. Um, but is that not the case? Is that not true? The moment that you sit there and you think, um, even in preparing for, for today, that I'm not adequate or that I haven't studied enough or that I'm not qualified enough. The moment that we're not thinking about God and I start thinking about myself, I'm left open to the attacks of the devil. I'm left open for him to sit there and condemn me. But ladies, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And if you are his, then anything that condemns you or tries to rob you of your faith, it is not from God. Stand firm in your faith, and in that hour, resist his schemes. If you resist him, he will flee from you. We were told this in James. And then draw near to the Lord, because he will draw near to you. The devil had pounced on Peter the night Jesus was crucified. And before that, remember, Jesus rebukes Peter earlier in Matthew 16, when he says, get behind me, Satan, because he's setting his mind on the things that are of man and not on the work that God has planned. So Peter is speaking to his audience from experience. We are all by nature born sinful with a disposition towards our self-reliance, and if we're not actively being watchful and thinking rightly of ourselves and our lives in Christ, focusing on who God is, then we are left vulnerable to be attacked. We become the reason for our own undoings, even though we want to blame others and point fingers. Again, remember that's exactly what happened the moment God confronted Adam and Eve. They instantly went from she made me to he made me to the serpent made me, and so on. The truth is that our sins are born from our own desires. That's also from James. We see something we want, and we seek to have it. And in this world, it is so very easy to convince ourselves that God would understand. Or to use the very word of God to justify our behavior. All good things are from him, so of course he would want us to enjoy these things. Insert whatever that may be. Your children, your spouse, your money, your job, a substance, or a material item. The biggest idol that we need to throw away is that of ourselves, and Peter's cautioning his readers that it is our pride and self-reliant hearts that the devil will use to lead some to make shipwreck of their faith. Do you believe that the devil seeks to devour you? Or are you like me who so easily can just put that aside and think either, God, God surely wouldn't, like that, you know, that was then, that's not now, or maybe some uh, give him more credit or power than is due. Either way, we are reminded here to stay the course. And the truth is that he is real and that he does hate us because he hates truly our Lord. And when we are aligned with Christ, we are his enemy. So we must be vigilant and resist him. But praise be to God that we are reminded here again of what the cure to our problem is. We resist the devil by remaining firm in our faith. We draw near to God, we preach the gospel to ourselves, we hope in God, we remember chapters one through four and the rest of the word, and we remember who God is. And then, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world, we can remember we're not alone. God has designed us to need one another. Alyssa had walked us through this just a couple weeks ago, 
indicating about how the church is a body, we can't function properly if the foot is missing or the hand is hurt. We are made for fellowship one to another, to encourage each other and build one another up in the faith. As it says in Hebrews, we're, we're to stir each other up to good works and to encourage one another. I listened to a podcast done by Ruth Simmons and her husband as Foundations, and she illustrated this in a way that I really loved. Foundations, um, sorry. To encourage one another is to give courage, um, to make deposits of truth into what would be an empty vessel. So where do we find our source for our courage? We find it in God and from the Word. To who do we look for help? To refuge. We know that you're, we're not alone, and whenever there's an opportunity that pre prevent, bleh, presents itself, it would be wise and good for us to be making deposits of truth-filled encouragement into the hearts and lives of our sisters in Christ and into our children. Okay. And so now we're in our last section. Stand firm in the true grace of God, 10 through 12. After a little while, and after a little while, <clears throat> you have suffered a little while, sorry. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, Peter is not meaning here a little while as you and I might hope. It's not like just, you know, a year, it's not just a couple of months, though it might be. But a little while might very well be in our entire lives here on this side of glory. But what's important to remember is that it's not the end. Uh, there's a little picture on the board behind me, and I'm hoping we can take a picture for the ladies on the podcast. But this is kind of the idea... Remember in Hebrews where it's talking about how we're to fix our eyes on Christ and to consider him who for the joy that was before him endured the cross? It's like an object. So if you took a quarter and you're holding it far from you, it seems pretty small and insignificant, but the closer you move it to your eye, the harder it is for you to see past it. We're either holding our sufferings and our present situations here in our forefront and not able to see the subsequent glories that are left for us. Or we can have the subsequent glories kind of overshadowing that. You'd have to get a beer recorder or maybe a $100 bill, but have that <laughs> in the back. Um, God has called us to his eternal glory, and we will be glorified when Christ, with Christ when he returns. This is a promise. We will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. God promises that we can find peace and no comfort taking the yoke of Jesus upon ourselves as we come to him. He will sustain and keep you. Here, now, and later, he will restore you. It reminds me of the book of Job, who stood firm, and while the devil sought to devour him, God not only would not let that happen, but at the end, Job is restored. And not just restored, but strengthened. Things were, were multiplied for him. He was established in the faith. Jesus took 
the suffering and the cross that was here right in front of him, the death that he was going to die on our behalf and moved that aside for the joy that was set before him. That's our future exaltation. That's our future hope, that future grace that Peter has been alluding to the entire book. When I was asked to step in for this teaching, I saw the first part, 6 through 10, and thought, okay, I can, I can do that. That's pretty self-explanatory, as someone had mentioned. And then I realized that I also had to do the closing remarks. And to be honest, I started to sweat because I find it to be really daunting. Uh, so I'm just going to read the closing remarks really quickly before we jump into that. Okay, so chapter 12 to 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So, Looking at that, I thought, what do I say here? Uh, and then that turned into, there's way too much to be said here. So I will keep it brief. That way we can enjoy some more discussion afterwards. Many commentators agree that the Silvanus is the same Silas who scribed for Paul. And Peter's declaration of him as a faithful brother indicates to us that we can trust him. He would have been the one responsible for taking this word and sharing it to the people. And it was somebody that he knew was going to faithfully take the truth. Uh, but there's also much that could be said about the she in Babylon, which is speculated to be the church in Rome. What I would like to focus on, though, uh, is the closing remarks that this is the true grace of God, to stand firm in it. The God of all grace. Grace is God himself. It is the very heart disposition of God towards his needy people. There is nothing that we can ever receive from God that is not his grace. And there is nothing that he will ever be to us. He won't be anything else to us, his child, than grace. And so what is grace? Peter is saying that this is the true grace of God. That's the entire book of 1 Peter that he has just uh, gone through and walked for us. But it is so much more than that, it is everything. It is the entire Bible. It is all that God has done, continues to do, and will continue to do. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says that grace is not unmerited favor, but demerited favor. Not something that we haven't earned, but grace is that favor of God that by nature we have despised and rejected so deeply that we ourselves apart from his grace actually working within us would never have sought nor found it isn't simply that we will never earn his grace but we do everything imaginable to lead us to be unable to ever accept it that he is grace he has sent grace and he works grace within us and lavishes it upon us upon his children every moment of every single day. When you need to repeat to yourself for what seems like the millionth time to your child in that hour when they are not listening, do you believe that there is grace that is sufficient in that moment? Or when you're struggling to submit to your boss or maybe to your husband, 
allowing him to lead solely because really you just want to be able to be in control of that situation yourself. There is grace there too. God is the God of grace. His grace is sufficient. And his grace is enough for every trial that you are facing. Uh, a wise friend of mine at one point had shared that his grace for the moment that you're going to go through a trial will be exactly what you need in that moment. You won't have that grace before that trial. You might not need that grace after that trial, that particular grace that he is going to give you for that, but it will be enough. It's like the pictures you see of the white horse, the rider on the white horse who's there beside you every step of the way to pull you out when you're drowning. Do you believe that his grace is sufficient for you? We must, because something else is very true and likely not thought enough of, and that's the devil is real, and he does hate us, and he is hunting us. Not in a creepy behind every shadow way, but in ways that allow our idols that we worship probably the most to become our own destruction. Peter started with humble yourselves, because if you're not humble, then you're proud. And if you're proud, then you are God-forgetful. We don't want to be people who are forgetting our Lord. We want to be people who are making much of him and forgetting ourselves and living in light of who he is, what he has done, promised, and commanded us. And if you're not living under the mighty hand of God, then you are trying to be the mighty hand of God. And we all know how that ends. We have seen countless experiences, I'm sure, in our own lives, and if not, God has given us his word filled with them. Wouldn't it just be nice to always be amongst other believers, to be within the church? Charles and I were just chatting the other night about how much easier it would be in life if we just 24-7 lived together here, encouraging one another, talking about Jesus, and even if you're not, you never feel like, oh, they're judging me for how I look, or any of that kind of stuff. We just come and love each other, and it's glorious. I mean, granted, I'm sure after maybe a week or less, <laughs> there will be a lot of opportunities for the lion to stick his claws in, even there. But how encouraging would that be just think about it. When you've spent time and spoken to another sister, do you leave feeling lousy? <sighs> Even if it's to call you to repentance, encouragement will follow because the Spirit is actively at work, causing us to be active for His glory and our good. And one day, ladies, one glorious day that will be the case, we will not suffer anymore, and we will be together every day, all day, worshiping our God. You who suffer at the hands of violent men persecuting you for your faith, you who suffer daily under the poisonous clutch of an abusive or mean husband, a father or boss, for you who have suffered with the painful realities of cancer, of disease and death, or those who feel alone as if they're not worth much at all, they think they're ugly and unworthy of friendship and love. One day, ladies, our suffering will lead to subsequent glories as Peter starts in First, first Peter 1. And we too will exchange 
our crosses that we bear now for crowns, and be together glorified with Christ, singing songs to our Lord, and know nothing of this life. He who sits on the throne will shelter us in his presence. The Lamb will guide us to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Every tear. And know that there is no tear now that is shed that goes unnoticed by him. In the Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 63, it talks about how he, he keeps them in a bottle. He keeps accounting them. There is nothing that you're going through that he does not know or that he is not there with open arms. Just as Jesus uttered from the cross, it is finished. So he states in John's book of Revelation, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Oh, that we would come to him and cast our every anxiety upon him, entrusting ourselves to him, knowing and truly believing in him that he will deliver us by a mighty hand through the storms that we face now, and he will again deliver us unto glory. Surely he is coming soon. This is what Peter is telling us. This is the grace of God that we can stand firm in because it's true and we live in it in some ways now but oh will it be a glorious day when we live in it forever. So let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father God, we are so grateful and so thankful Father for your word, for your truth, for your son, God for your grace and that you are the God of all grace, and that you have called us, Father, to your eternal glory, that you have called us who are in Christ before the foundation of the world to be your own Lord, your treasured possession, your child. Oh, Father, what beauty there is in that. We thank you for the words that you have spoken to us through Peter. We thank you for the truth that this is not the end, that we will before your face now, and then see your face again, be restored and confirmed. Father, that our hope, our hope is imperishable, that our hope is unfading, and that you, Father God, are guarding us by your power, by your mighty hand. We thank you, Father, that this is the hope to which we can cling. God, praise you that you sent your Son because you so loved us. Thank you, Jesus, that you faithfully submitted and were the example of humility for us. And thank you, God, that you have given us your Holy Spirit who guides and directs our mind's eye to see the truth of the glory that is in Christ. Father, I pray that you just go before the rest of our week. I pray that this would be an encouragement to all the ladies here and at home. Help us to have fruitful discussion now for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.